So when, um, just before I begin on the preach, I was thinking about Christmas and when I was still teaching RE in school, um, and I've, I think I've, I might have mentioned it before, but um, at, at the, there was a lesson when we talked about the birth of Jesus, it came around every year, we did it with year eights, 12, 13 year olds, and uh, we always did a survey to begin the lesson about what, what do you love most about Christmas? And you expected that they'd say, oh, it's the presents and all that. But I was always, every single year, I was always quite flawed, genuinely shocked every year because the, the gifts were always about halfway down on the list. The top answer always, without fail, different classes every year, 12, 13-year-olds were spending time with family. And it always, always got me. And the close second was the food, Christmas dinner. <laughs> but it was always spending time with family. And I suppose the food and the family comes together because it's the one time that most of those children sat around a table with their family and spent time eating together, you know, and just like, Everybody's off work, nobody's rushing around. It's all built up to that point, sat around the table. And, you know, but like I say, it was the same top answers every year. Family, then the food, then the gifts. They appreciated the gifts, but they treasured the family time. It had a much more lasting effect. And that's because people took the time to be together to be present with one another, talking and listening, relaxing together. And I know it's not always like that for everybody. Um, but it is, you know, it is one time that they can, you can, you've got that opportunity to have those precious times out of the busyness of life. And so I just want to move on to the fact that God's not too busy for us, ever. He's not too busy for you. And, you know, like John was saying when, not that long ago, when God finished his work, he stood back and he said, oh, it's good. And then when he finished creating mankind, he said, oh, it's very good. And he didn't just move on, he looked, he really looked. He was admiring what he created. He was perfect. He was pleased with what he'd made and how he'd made us. So Ruth and myself, we were at um, a worship event um, at her dad's church a couple of weeks ago. And there was a word given for a, a guy there. And the word given was that God sees him in the secret place. And I've not been able to get it out of my head, I'll be honest. Um, and of course, it was a personal word for that person. And it, it meant something to him. But it's also true for every single one of us. Because we all have times where we feel a bit overlooked, invisible, worthless. You know, like we're getting it wrong, imposter syndrome, that kind of thing. And I believe God wants me to tell you this morning that we can be sure, that you can be sure that we have a God who sees you. So let's just pray. Father God, just thank you for the word that you've given for today. 
And I pray that you'd anoint it and that it wouldn't return to you without doing what it is that you want it to do. Lord, I pray that we would be teachable. And I pray that you'd lead me and guide me as I speak, Father God. And that you would be honoured this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if God sees you, what does it mean? So 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So he wants to, he looks upon us to strengthen us. He's looking to support you. He's looking for those who are committed to them. He's searching the world. He's interested in you. He sees what nobody else sees. He sees you when you speak to him in the secret place. It could be in your car. It could be in your bed. It could be in the loo. I don't know. When you speak to God in that secret place, when it's just you and him, he sees you. And, you know, it's those places where you ask why. It's those places where you say, I don't understand, Lord, but I trust you. And he sees that. And it's not like a Santa Claus is coming to town type, he sees you when you're sleeping type thing. And by the way, that song, how judgmental, it starts with, you better watch out. Do you know what I mean? It's such a judgment. It's a, I know it's a classic, but judgmental, you better watch out. And he knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh my gosh. Christmas cheer. Anyway, it's a bit threatening, isn't it? That song. Praise God, we don't serve Santa Claus. Um, But aren't you glad that God is not like that? When he sees us, he looks at our hearts. You know, when, when, when John was talking about the sin and all that kind of stuff, sin begins in the heart. You know, we, we are spiritual beings, but sin begins in the heart. Okay. And God's not looking at you. He's not searching for you. He's not seeking you to punish you or find those things. He's looking for the good stuff. He's looking for the good soil. He wants to know where he can plant the seeds. He wants to bless you, teach you, nurture you. He wants you to go from strength to strength and from glory to glory. He doesn't want you to fail. And we can trust him. He is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And God has many names. He's known as Yahweh or Jehovah, which means the self-existent one. The I Am. He's known as El Elyon, the Lord Most High. Jehovah Jireh, anyone know what that is? Provider. Provider. I have a long list of his names, but only one of them, interestingly, has ever been given to him by a human being. And that person wasn't a king or a prophet or a priest. It was an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. And if you're not familiar with her story, Hagar was the servant or the slave of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. At this point, they were still known as Sarai and Abram. 
And um, for context, Abram had already been called out from a place called Ur, which is in Iraq. And he'd been promised um, by God that he would be the father of many nations. But time had gone by and Sarai still hadn't had children and she'd gone past the point of having children. So in a desperate attempt to force the promise, and that's another sermon altogether um, that I just don't have time for today, Sarah, Sarai offered her slave girl, Hagar, to Abram to be a surrogate. And whether Hagar had any say or not in this is questionable, probably not. Um, but it's important to understand that it was culturally acceptable at the time for these slave girls to go in as surrogates for their mistresses. Because at, in those days, it was a great shame upon the woman to not be able to have children. And what I found when looking at the story was... Hagar comes along and she's, she's working for Sarai. She's her, you know, maidservant or her slave. But when Sarai and Abram talked about Hagar, they did not call her by name. She was known as your slave or your servant or my slave. They did not call her by name ever. It's just the narrator, who in this case is Moses, writing it down, who wrote down her name. So it's dehumanizing enough, isn't it, to be a slave and a surrogate and, you know, be told to do this. Um, but to be somebody who's never even called by name it takes it to another level, doesn't it? You've got no identity of your own. And it's lovely, isn't it, when somebody remembers your name, even if, and when you've met them just once and they remember your name you feel quite special don't you it's like it's a precious thing to remember somebody's name but for her she was not referred to by name and she was she was right at the bottom of the pecking order so to speak nobody referred to her by name her name actually means stranger or it could mean one who fears but there's also another meaning of it, which means flight. So she could have been a runaway who ended up with Sarai. I don't know. Nobody knows. It doesn't say. But what we do know is that they felt that too much time had gone past and they ran ahead of God, decided to take matters into their own hands and Hagar immediately became pregnant by Abram. Job done. But you know what? When we take God's promises and try to fulfill them ourselves in our own strength, it does not make for a happy environment, not ever. Because after Hagar realizes that she's pregnant, even though it could possibly bring her a bit more status and recognition and a bit of an identity, she becomes very bitter. And it's quite understandable, really, she's been used. She can't really marry now. She could never marry. She can't ever be free. She's bound to Abram and Sarai in a much, much deeper way. Or it could be that the dynamic did change, and she felt that she did need to have a little bit more of a place in the household. 
And it does actually seem that way when we read it because she's quite rude to Sarai after this. The Bible tells us that she treats her mistress with contempt. And Sarai doesn't know what to do about it. She's not used to that. She's not used to people speaking to that way. And she complains to her husband. So we're just going to read it from Genesis 16, 5 to 10. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. See how she didn't even call her by name. And now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So Sarai treated her so harshly that she runs away, pregnant and alone, and she finds herself in the wilderness. And an interesting thing that I've found as I've been researching this, that the word used for the mistreatment that Sarai, you know, for how Sarai had mistreated Hagar, is the exact same word that's used for how the Egyptians mistreated the Hebrew slaves further on, which is quite interesting, isn't it? But the first thing that happens after she runs away was that God found her. She wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for her. No one else was looking. No one seems to have gone after her, but he was the one who went after her. And secondly, he spoke to her by name, the only recorded person to do so. And he knew her and used her name, and then that gives, it gives value, it gives an identity. And he showed her that he knew her personally. She wasn't just known because she belonged to Sarai. God had asked her, he asked her two questions. He said, where have you come from? And where are you going? He took time to ask her about herself. He surely knew, he's God, where she'd come from and where she was going. But we see the same with Jesus, don't we? He asked lots of questions. He threw questions out to people, to everybody who came to him. What do you seek? What do you want me to do for you? Where are you going? He wanted people to engage in conversation with him. And God gave space to Hagar to tell him her troubles. She'd probably not had anybody ask her for a very long time about herself. But Hagar answered only one of those two questions. She only answered where she'd come from. And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She didn't say where she was going. I don't think she knew where she was going. She wasn't actually thinking about her future. And God then continued to speak to her about what would become of her son and gave her this incredible promise. 
And then he tells her to go back and submit to Sarai. And you'd think, wouldn't you, after this mistreatment, which must have been very harsh, that Hagar would sulk or plead, please don't send me back. But I think she was certain of God's love at that point. She knew that he was with her. She, she knew that she could trust him, that this, if he told her to go back, it must be the safest place for her to be and, and for her baby. I believe she trusted him. She must have felt so loved and comforted by God's intervention because listen to what happens next in verse 13 to 15. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roi. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. The English Standard Version says, I've seen him who looks after me. And, but listen to how the Amplified Version puts it. When she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I not even here in the wilderness remained alive after seeing him, who sees me with understanding and compassion? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roi, well, the well of the living one who sees me. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son to whom Hagar gave birth, Ishmael, which means God hears. The God who sees me in the Hebrew is El Roi. It can also mean shepherd. It's not Roy, just to let you know. It looks like it says Roy. God is not called Roy. Um, nothing against anybody called Roy. If there's a Roy in here, I'm sorry. It's nothing against you. But Hagar did not name God Roy. It's pronounced El Roi. But she knew that even though she was going back to an uncertain situation where her relationship with Sarah had broken down, she knew she was taken care of. How would a young, pregnant Egyptian slave girl survive on her own in the wilderness? She didn't have any plan to go anywhere. God sent her back to protect her, and she immediately went back without any argument. Are you all still with me? So God never gave up on Hagar, but look at this. Her situation was forced upon her, but God didn't change her situation. It was a horrible situation for her. God didn't change the situation. God changed her heart. Encounters with God will do that. It'll change your heart. How can we ever be the same again after an encounter with the living God. She knew he was watching over her, and when you know that, when you know that you know that God is watching over you, you've got hope. When you know that God sees you, there's comfort. You know you're safe. And uh, God didn't forget his promise to Abram and Sarah. He is faithful. They had their own encounter with God, he, and then he renamed them Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah did become pregnant and gave birth to Isaac, the son of the promise. Nothing they did 
stopped the promise of God from coming to pass. They made a mess, but God dealt with it all. The old tensions between Hagar and Sarah came back after Sarah had Isaac, which is a shame. And um, Sarah caught Ishmael laughing at her son Isaac, the son of the promise. He was mocking him. And so Sarah sent, this time, Sarah sent Hagar away. She didn't run away, she was sent away. And Abraham was torn about this, but God told him to just let her go. And so Hagar found herself back in the wilderness with a young son. And this time, she forgot about what God had said about her future, and she completely gave up. She was very sad. Remember, a few years before, she'd wanted to leave. She ran out of there without even knowing where she was going. And now, she was sent away. She didn't want to leave. She didn't want her freedom. And sometimes, it's hard to live in freedom. We get used to the comfort of the past. She didn't know how they were going to survive. She was terrified. But God wants us to trust him with, you know, in that freedom, with the freedom that he's given us, doesn't he? So listen to what happens next. Genesis 21, 15 to 19. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there. as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God used her name again. But it's interesting to see that even though she was the one sobbing he, and he spoke to her, it was the cry of the boy that reached God's ears. Remember his name, Ishmael, it means God hears. Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God sees us. And God hears us. We don't hear about how they survived. We just know that they did. We don't know what kind of place they lived in or whether they found other people to join with. All we know is that they made their home in the wilderness and survived successfully. And he did go on to be, you know, nations did come from Ishmael. But God takes care of the details, doesn't he? Even when we don't know what's coming next. He's faithful. And we can trust him to take care of the specifics. Psalm 139, verse 15 to 16, written by David, says this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me 
when as yet there was none of them. And David was another young man, wasn't he, who was seen when no one else saw him. He was a shepherd boy out alone in the wilderness himself. And like Hagar, he met God out there in the wilderness as a young man, young boy. And during these times out, looking after sheep in the middle of nowhere, David learned to fight. We learn that even as a boy, he fought, off, uh, he fought for the sheep. He fought off lions and bears to save those sheep. He perfected in those times on his own how to use his sling and his weapons. And he didn't even realize how this would affect his future. He became courageous in the wilderness. And not only that, it was in the wilderness that he learned to play music. He learned to worship, and he worshipped God alone in the secret place. Those times on his own in the wilderness were times when he cultivated his relationship with God, and God saw this, and he knew him. In those times when we're on our own with God in the secret place, God sees you. But David was young. He was overlooked. David was pushed about by his older brothers. He was an afterthought. David was out tending the sheep when the prophet Samuel turned up asking to see the sons of Jesse. And they just left him out there. They didn't bring them all. When Saul, the first king of Israel, failed, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king from Jesse's sons. And Jesse lined up seven of his eight sons. He didn't even think about David. All of them but David. He couldn't possibly have meant that young lad out there with the sheep. And Samuel first looked at Jesse's sons and he was encouraged. They were fine young men, warriors, definite king material. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16, 6 to 7. Then they came, Jesse's sons. He looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or, in the, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But after Samuel had gone down the line of the sons, the seven of them, he wasn't, he wasn't given the go-ahead to anoint any of them. He was confused. He must have thought, have I heard right? Did you actually say Jesse's sons? He must have thought, what is going on? And verse 11 goes on. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now before this, they were all a bit scared of Samuel. They were like, have you come in peace? And they said, yes, I've come in peace. So I don't know why they didn't go and get all of the sons when he was told, because they had this respect for Samuel. Um, anyway. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. See how David was quickly dismissed as unimportant. The youngest, the one keeping the sheep. 
not there. Too young for this kind of situation. Should be seen and not heard. Anyone here the youngest in the family? I am. I remember that feeling. Obviously not, you know, I wasn't fighting lions and bears, but, you know, I, I remember being the youngest in the family. Nobody means anything nasty by it, but you're just the lowest in the pecking order, aren't you? You're just the one that nobody really, you know, want. It's like, you can be quiet. You're all right. Go make the cup of tea. It's a bit like that. And the, you're the last person that anybody asks for their opinion or anything because you're the youngest. But God sees David and he watched him, worshipping him in the desert on his own, just with the sheep around him. And, you know, David wasn't there lining up before Samuel, but God had prepared him for that very moment. David hadn't even been thought of. But in the secret place in the wilderness, the least in his family, God had been teaching him, preparing him. The time when the bear attacked was his training. The times when he was so bored, he was perfecting his target practice with his sling. It was his tuition. The time when he sat playing worship music, his relationship with God was deepening. The Psalms were going to come from this one man or most of the Psalms. God sees. He sees the real you. He sees you in your secret place. When you're praying, talking quietly to him, reminding yourself of his word in any sort of situation, he sees you. Jesus said that even the hairs on our head are numbered. He knows our frame. Our tears are bottled. He sees our sadness. Remember it said, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We need to make sure that we're seeking God before anything else. God sees us, not only as we are, but as we will be. There's a big picture that, to be honest, if we knew the big picture, it's probably not going to be good for us. It wouldn't be good for us to know everything in advance, I don't think. But we're impatient, aren't we, as human beings, to know the future. But God doesn't want us to trust in that. He wants us to trust in him. We don't even need to focus on the promises that he's given us. We just need to focus on him. He's given, he's given us, you know... I don't know what I've put here, let me see. Yeah, it didn't work out so well for Sarah and Abraham when they obsessed over the promise, did it? Instead of trusting and focusing on God, we need to focus and trust in God. Don't obsess over your promises. He wants us to look to him. We know he's got plans for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future. There are so many verses which tell us that God sees us. We might feel overlooked, invisible, not important, but you are precious to God. You are important. Keep meeting with him in the secret places. Let's just read Psalm 121. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. 
The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. What a promise. He watches over us. 